Uh, my name is John, by the way. I, I am the pastor, uh, one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, um, very grateful that you're, you're here, and I hope to get a chance to meet you. Please say hi if I haven't get the, got, had the chance to meet you. We're in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we always look at the life of Jesus at the beginning of the year. He's, he's the central figure in our faith, and so we're working through the Gospel of Matthew, and that'll take us up to Easter, which is uh, we're headed into the season of Lent, where we prepare ourselves to receive and celebrate the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and uh, today we're in this passage called the Temptation of Jesus. Usually I read the passage for us, and then I'll give some thoughts and teaching on it, but today we're going to do it slightly different, because this passage really opens itself up to reading it together. So we're just going to read through it, and I'm going to give us some comments uh, and guidance as we do that. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it. If you have a Bible app uh, as well, feel free to open that. But the words, as always, will be up on the screen here as well. So in this passage, the, the first sentence is a really great summary of what we're about to see. So the passage starts in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So if you were with us last week, we saw the baptism of Jesus where he received the Spirit. And then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And I just want to point this out quickly here because it kind of goes against the way that I think we think about what God usually does and how he works. I think it's really easy to see God in the baptism moments of our lives, you know, the guitar solo moments of our lives where it's really great and things are going well and it's exciting. But the times where we go into the wilderness or maybe, you know, the dark night of the soul, there's lots of different names for this, just places where it might feel like God is very distant. We often, we often, that maybe God's not present or he's not leading in those moments or his spirit is not with us. But this passage pushes on that idea just to say that maybe actually it's God inviting us into those moments. Maybe he's got something for us there. So if that's you, if you're going through one of those moments where you're going through a dark time or, you know, some deconstruction or whatever you might call it, maybe actually the spirit of God is right there with you. It might not necessarily be the bad, a bad thing, but something that the spirit is directing you into to draw you closer to God, as we'll see through this passage excuse me, through this passage. So who does Jesus meet in the wilderness? It says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Be tempted by the devil. So we, we looked at this character last week, the Satan or the devil. And so I'm not going to give us a quick summary from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project uh, to help us know who this character is and kind of summarize what we talked about last week. Here's what he says. There is this claim that reality as we know it is pervaded with some form of evil that is more than just stupid human choices. It's more than just stupid human choices. That there's this mysterious personal reality working in and behind and through human selfishness and sin. And the way that claim is represented in the Bible is through this figure, the Satan. And apparently Jesus saw his identity and his vocation to deal with that dark power. So Jesus and this dark power the Satan are coming together in this moment. And he is going to, the devil is going to, it says, tempt Jesus, tempted in the wilderness. Now the word tempted is, is a good word to describe what the underlying Greek phrase is saying here. Because a temptation, you think of temptation, you think of having options. Generally, we think of something being put in front of you that you want, but you know you shouldn't have. So for example, if we went uh, out for lunch and I was on a diet and I saw like some chocolate cake or something on the menu, I'd be like, ooh, I'm tempted but I know I shouldn't have it. That's kind of the idea that we have, generally speaking, when we think of, of tempted, that there's a fork in the road, that there's some different options being put out in front of us, and I shouldn't take one of them. And that's true to this word, but many of the language experts that I read this week in preparation for this time said that a better translation might be a trial 
or a test, a trial or a test. Because they also get at that idea that there's different options put in front of you. So for example, in a test, if you're doing a multiple choice test, you know, you've got A, B, C, D, E, and only one of them is going to be right. But something like a trial is a really good word because it, it, the, the goal of a trial, like Andrew's talking about, um, is that you actually come to the truth of the situation. You reveal what's underneath, the underlying thing, what's true about a character or what has happened. And that's what's going to be happening to Jesus in this passage. It's going to be revealing the truth about his character. Because like in the rest of Matthew, this story is following up on a story from the Hebrew scriptures. And it's from Deuteronomy 8. This is a hyperlink to the story. So we need to read that passage to understand what's going on. So Deuteronomy, if you're not familiar, is a book in the Bible. And it's uh, Moses' last speech to the people of Israel. So the people were enslaved in Egypt. They have been uh, taken out by Moses' leadership through the Red Sea. Then they were in the wilderness for 40 years, but Moses doesn't get into the promised land. So they're just on the edge. The people are going to go in, and Moses is giving his speech to recap everything that's happened to them and remind them. So here's what he says. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. It's the same idea test you to know what was in your heart and whether or not you would keep his commands. So the wilderness was a test for the people of Israel. And we said a couple weeks ago that they were the original son of God. That's what they're called in the scriptures. And how did they do in that test? Well, not very, not very well, if you read the, the passage and know the story. So, but in this passage, we're set up to that same question. How is this new son of God going to do in the wilderness in this test that Jesus has. And in, in the book of Matthew so far, we're only a few chapters in, but we've been presented with many claims about who this Jesus character is, that he's the great king, that he's the Messiah, this long-awaited anointed one who's going to come and save his people, that he's the great new created human being come to create, bring the kingdom and recreate each of us, that he's the son of David, this, this great king in the history of Israel, that come and lead as a king, that he is the son of Abraham, which means that Abraham got this blessing where God said to him, I'm going to bless you in order that you would be blessed. You would bless the world and bless other people. And Jesus is reliving that story as he receives a blessing from God that he is coming to bless the world, that Jesus is going to bring his people out of exile and back into the promised land, that Jesus is reliving the story of, of Israel that we just talked about, that he's taking his people out of slavery and into the promised land. And that he brings the long-awaited spirit, and he is, as it said last week, the beloved son of God. And so this passage is bringing that question to us. Is Jesus actually who he says he is? All of these terms and all of these names that have been given to him, is this actually who he is? Is he the son of God? Is he the true human? And this should be relevant for us for two reasons, at least, I think. The first is that we should be asking the same question. You know, if you uh, grew up in the church or you're anyone familiar with the Bible, then probably like none of these names are new to you. None of these names that Jesus has given. And if I was to give you a test and I was to say like, you know, here's, here's the options. Is Jesus the son of Abraham or is he the son of the devil? You'd be like, well, okay. I know the answer to that one. Um, but the problem is when we get into the wilderness moments ourselves, when we get into the moments of testing, then we ask the same question. Even though we know the answer, we get into those moments where we're asking the same question. Is Jesus as he is? Is he actually good? Is he actually trustworthy? Is he actually faithful? Is he the one I'm going to put my hope and faith in? 
And if you're asking that question maybe very acutely right now, you're in good company. And I'm glad you're here because this passage is addressing that very question, who is Jesus? That's why Matthew included it. And hopefully we as a church community also can be a place where you can journey along and learn that answer. So that's the first reason is because we are are often asking the same question, who is Jesus in this moment in my life? The second reason is because while we're not Jesus, we're promised that if we follow him, we will go through the same times of testing in our own lives. One of my favorite passages is Romans 8, and it talks about how the Holy Spirit ministers to us in our lives and helps us to cry out to God as our Father. But the last sentence of that passage says, if we suffer with him. It's going through these trials that we are promised that we'll actually experience the Spirit in our lives. And I don't know about you, but the voice, this voice in this passage that we're going to hear, the voice of testing, the voice of trial is the same in my life, where I go through these dark seasons, and it's a question, is God who he says he is? And am I who he says I am? And so these are important questions uh, for us to deal with as well. So there's three tests in this passage. We're going to look through, uh, we're going to read through it, and we're going to spend our time on the first two, uh, and then we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time on the last one. Let's take a look at the first test that Jesus goes through. Verse two, After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, if that's your identity, tell these stones to become bread. And here's what the Satan is saying to Jesus. If you are the great king, if this is who you are, all these names that are uh, applicable to you, if that's your identity, then why are you out here in the wilderness? Why are you out here hungry and all alone? This doesn't look like the life of a king to me. It looks like you're homeless, actually. You're headed in the wrong direction. You know, a king's life should be up and to the right, towards the palace, towards ruling and conquering. Here you are in the desert all by yourself, hungry and alone. Like, what's, what's going on? How could you say that you're actually there? And he's testing Jesus' identity and his loyalty. Yeah, great. It's easy to feel blessed. It's easy to feel like God's son when you are in those moments like the baptism where Jesus goes into the water, all these people are watching, the spirit comes down on him, God's voice speaks from above. That's easy, easy to believe that you're the son of God and that God really cares about you in that moment. How about now in the desert, all alone and hungry? And I don't know if you know this voice, but I do. Um, this is the same way it works in my life. I took my kids uh, on Thursday to uh, Westside Church. They have a prayer and, and worship night uh, on the last Thursday of every month. And so I took my kids there. And it's just like this, you know, they got a huge band. And my kids actually were like, I said, How did, what, did you, do you, what did you think of it? And they were like, it was too loud. I was like, what are you, like 70? Come on. Um, <clears throat> but um, anyways, we went and it was this great time and they really enjoyed it and they had a lot of fun. But one of the reasons I said to them on the car ride on the way home, it's like, you know, you can feel a lot of times like you're the only Christian that you know. And a lot of them, like, may not have Christian friends in their own age demographic. And so I know that feeling, just to feel lonely and alone. And you wonder, like, is God really here? And so we have these other moments, these moments of, of where we get into a room with a couple hundred people and they're all praising and worshiping God. And you can just feel, in those moments, it's easy to feel God's presence and to follow Jesus and to know that I am his child. And it's somewhat harder when they go to school on a Tuesday all alone in their class as the only Christian that's there. And I know that works the same way for me too. Maybe you come here and you feel like, oh, look, if I'm crazy, all these other people are crazy too. That's great. But then we go home, we go to our jobs, and and we can feel very alone, and and we can start to doubt and question. So how does Jesus answer this this test from Satan? Verse 4. 
Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, my hunger and my thirst that I'm experiencing in this wilderness moment in the desert doesn't define me. These circumstances in this moment of my life don't define my identity and who I am. And this is a beautiful statement, uh, but we need to go a bit deeper into the passage because I think, I don't know if you're like me, but in those moments of my life, just saying that kind of thing, quoting a scripture, is, it doesn't help me out. There's still that moment of testing, and I, and, and I might think, like, of course Jesus is going to pass the test. We know Jesus is going to pass the test, but me, I don't in those moments. I'm more likely to fail. And so we need to dig a little bit deeper and see what Jesus is actually doing in this passage. And so first I want to point out two things that Jesus is not doing in this passage. The first is that Jesus is not a stoic. He is not like Buddha. Oftentimes Jesus and Buddha get quite confused uh, in our, like, I don't know, in the West, I guess. Buddha would probably advocate something like, you know what? Feasting or famine, it's all the same. doesn't matter. Put that in the fortune cookie. Um, you know, that, that's the kind of idea that he has. It's like a stoic response. It doesn't really matter. Take your emotions and just wrap them up. Nothing is real. Jesus is not ever doing that actually at all. He is emotionally uh, there. And he's not saying nothing bothers me. He's not like an emotional robot like me, okay? A, a recovering emotional robot like me. There's a lot of other times we'll see Jesus cry out in pain in the gospel. And we've already seen that if you've been with us in this series, that God is, is crying out. He's sharing his emotions with us as his people. And so that's not the response that, that he's advocating for. It's not a path of emotional shutdown. Jesus also isn't just randomly quoting scripture. So let's see what he's, he's doing here. Jesus, when he's, he's taking his life and his circumstances and he's placing them within a much bigger story. Deuteronomy 8, the passage that we already looked at, here's the part that he's, he's quoting. He's saying, uh, this is again Moses speaking to the Israelites. He humbled you. God humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. This is what Jesus quotes. Your clothing did not wear out, and your feet did not swell those 40 years. Moses is reminding the people and Jesus is reminding himself and the devil that in the midst of the wilderness, it can look like God's not present. It can look like he's very distant and not faithful. But in this, in this situation, as Moses is saying, God was right there. He was providing for his people in the desert by giving them bread to eat, by giving them clothes that didn't wear out and, and their feet didn't swell. He provided for them. And Jesus, as reliving Israel's story, is coming in and he's saying, yeah, at this specific moment in my life, I don't know where exactly God is or how he's going to be faithful. I'm hungry and I'm alone in the wilderness. And I'm tempted to wonder where God is, but I look back. I place my story within this greater story of the Bible. And I see that every time that people thought they were alone, every time that they wondered where God is, God eventually did come up and show up. He was and he is faithful. That God is not distant but present. And so I make that story my story, and I look at my circumstances in this moment of my life in light of that greater story, and I trust in God. I learn to trust and test in my wilderness moment. And this is the invitation for any of us who are going through storms or darkness or wilderness or, you know, hell or hunger, whatever it is. It's not to become stoic or just start quoting random passages of scripture, but to zoom out 
And for us, we don't need to, we can go back to the story of Israel and it's really helpful to do so, but we can also go to the story of Jesus who had a wilderness moment even greater than this one that we looked at in this passage where it looked like absolutely everything was lost, that he went into the darkness, he went into his death when it looked like a moment when God had failed and had left him completely and wasn't faithful. But three days later, we see the empty tomb that God did provide for, for Jesus, that he is faithful and that there is this great hope. God provided in his own timing. And this is what we do every day. Take communion together, as we'll do a little bit later in the service. This body that looked like it was dead, the, the, the bones, the, the bread, the blood, and the wine or the juice, looked like it was dead, but is now alive. And we take that into our bodies to proclaim that whatever darkness we're going through, that there is hope when we look at Jesus. As the, the, um, the moniker is, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We proclaim that to ourselves and to each other, that he is who he says he is, and that I am who he says I am. So that's the first test. Let's take a look at the second one, verse 5. Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. So again, it's the same, same question. If this is who you say you are, then throw yourself down off the temple. And it's really interesting how Satan tests Jesus in this passage. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down or it is written. He says, oh, okay, you want to quote Bible passages? Here, I'll quote one for you. Psalm 91. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you. And they will support you with their hands so that you do not strike your foot against the stone. So he's quoting Psalm 91, which is a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful poem of someone in a very similar situation to Jesus. The psalmist is in a dark place and he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he says, I'm going to trust that no matter what happens, God will protect me and that he won't let me die. Now, this should give us some pause here because we, uh, we are a group of people who do care about scripture quite a lot. You know, we're all gathered here on Sunday to partially listen to God's word. And so it's really important for us to note that Satan is using scripture and he's misusing scripture. That's possible to misuse it, is what I'm trying to say. And so we need to look at how Satan is use, misusing this scripture. He is uh, making it into a formula, is what he's doing. He's basically saying about the scripture, okay, if you throw yourself down off the temple, God says in this passage that he'll save you. So let's test him. Let's try it out. Let's make it into a formula. You throw yourself down, God will test you. And he's reversing the relationship between God and Jesus. So this is how uh, I, I formalize it or think of it in my mind. In this passage, God is God. He's the king of the entire universe. So he's overall. And Jesus is God too. But when Jesus becomes a human, he chooses to show us what it means to be a perfect human being, what we were made to be, which is a person that's underneath God. So if you remember back to a couple weeks ago, we talked about a person who's vulnerable, but also given authority, that we are to reflect God into the world. And so Jesus is living that life. Jesus is living a life, we could say, submitted to God. And what Satan is subtly doing is saying, let's take scripture and let's just reverse those things. Let's put you in control of the story. Let's make it into a formula so that God now is in your debt. If this is what he's going to say, if this is what he says he's going to do, let's switch it around. And you can now take control of the story using the Bible. You can take control of the narrative and make God act on your behalf. 
Jesus goes from being the fulfiller of the story to the writer of the story, and he's asking God to help him write his story. That's what Satan is doing. He wants to use God's words to control God. He says, you promised you'd save me, so let's accelerate the timeline. Let's accelerate the timeline. I don't have to trust and figure out how you're, and wait for how you're going to save me. Let's make you do it right now. And this is always the nature of testing in the Bible. If we go back First test that happens, which is in the third chapter of the Bible, we see exactly the same thing happening. The same, same figure, the Satan or the snake or the devil, comes to these people, these two characters in the story, Adam and Eve, and he says to them, do you want to be like God? And do you want to know the difference between good and evil? Now, I just want you to think about that for a second. Are those good or bad things? They're actually good things. We were made to be like God. That's what the Bible says in his image. And knowing the difference between good and evil is a good thing. It's like wisdom, okay? The difference is when the Bible talks about how we become like that, it uses often the metaphor of a tree, that we grow into that, that we trust God and we slowly grow into that kind of a... And what the devil is coming to the Adam and Eve and saying is he's saying, "Let's, let's just take a shortcut. Forget the tree, go straight to the fruit. You can shortcut around and become like God and know the difference between good and evil. Don't trust God. Don't trust the process. Let's shortcut around. And that's the same thing he's doing in this passage. Let's take control of the narrative and do it on our own terms. Now, how might this test relate to us? You know, I can't think of probably a more important, uh, but also a more difficult word for us to hear than this one. Because this is the test that we face every day, day in, day out, moment by moment. Because our culture encourages nothing more than for us to take control of our story and our narratives and put ourselves at the center of the world. Let me quote one of my favorite authors. His name is David Foster Wallace. He's not a Christian, but he, uh, he wrote this essay called This is Water, where he's just describing this is the world we live in. It's the water we don't even notice around ourselves. Here's what he says. A huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to automatically be certain of is it turns out totally wrong and diluted. Here's one example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to automatically be sure of, that everything in my own immediate existence supports my deep belief that I'm at the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth, Think about it. There's no experience that you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. And if this is true about us, and I think it it is, then it would make sense that we would automatically apply it to our relationship with God. We would put ourselves at the center of the story. That God only exists as far as he's relevant to me. God comes to save me, to help me, to help me make my dreams come true, whatever those dreams are. And God's word then can also only be used in a service to those ends. Now, before you, you go and think like, oh, I know those people. I know those people that do that, self-absorbed people. We call them millennials. Um, as, as a millennial, I can say that. Um, I want to clarify who I'm talking about here. I'm talking, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you I'm talking about us. I'm not talking about people out there. This is us. You know, as uh, the, the, the wonderful 90s movie Scream says, the call's coming from inside the house on this one, not out there. And there's so many ways that we put God in our service, but just let me give you two that I think are the most relevant to us. The first 
is that God is, is only in service of my middle-class Canadian dream. God's in service of my middle-class Canadian dream. This is what's default for most of us. It's just what's expected, that uh, we have this kind of life. Of course, it's, it's in the category of, of course, this will happen in my life. It's just water. It's water, as David Foster Wallace says. And the formula runs generally for us, if I do the right things, you know, if I go to the right schools, if I, you know, have the right partner, and we can add church in there, faith. If I have the right beliefs, if I have the right God, if I have the right faith community, then things will work out in my life. Then I'll have this dream, the things that are just default assumptions about what my middle class life should look like. And again, we're not out there looking for like Chip Wilson money or like, you know, Tinder swindler life. Uh, We're not like, you know, Evander Kane sleeping on stacks of money here. We just want, it's a Canadian dream, middle class, right? We want to just be middle class. There can't be anything more fundamentally Canadian than this. But it's the kind of this idea, it's a formula. The right inputs will equal the right outputs. And again, it's just a default setting. It's a default mode. And that's why, as David Foster Wallace says, it's so, so dangerous to us. Because it's just an automatic script that we, all, that we believe. And therefore, we weave God into that. And we take control and we put ourselves at the center of the story. Not that any of those things are wrong of, of being middle class. But that's the default setting of our lives, and that's why it's dangerous, because it's, we assume it's what we deserve. And I'll just say this. The moments of, of real difficulty in both your relationship with God and in your life is when you, re- you reach the moments where you realize those dreams may not be realized. I can't think of any better way to describe the exodus from our city in the last few years of people who said, can't have the middle-class dream here. It's a default setting. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that's a way of talking about it. Let me mention one more way that we do this, and and that's that I define God. I define who he is, and there's two ways of doing this. The first is the non-religious way, and as a a group of people who are here, maybe we're more familiar with this one, but it kind of goes along this path. I'm a modern person, and there's things about, you know, this is a 2,000-year-old book that we're reading, and there's things in this book like I just can't accept about God. Like, the, you know, sacrifice and like Jesus dying for like a son dying for my sins. It's all just kind of bizarre. So I'm going to ignore those parts and just take the parts that I like. The parts that sense to me, the parts that help me. And usually that's Jesus. Like he's, you know, uh, a Buddha type of figure. And now I'm all for questioning and wrestling. If you know anything about me, I invite that. And I think God's inviting it by the different passages that we have here. But the moment that we say God can't be like this, we are off on the wrong foot and we've changed that relationship. And I would say it like this, we've colonized God in that scenario. And, and as we should know from our history, you can't have a good relationship with a colonized people, never mind a colonized God. And the Bible has a word for this. They call it idolatry. That what we do is we make a God in our own image and it's not something that we can truly worship because it's just a mirror reflecting us back to ourselves ultimately. So that's the non-religious way of doing it, but there's also a religious way of doing this. And it starts, it's, it's slightly more insidious and maybe more uh, pertinent to us as, as folks who are religious people. Because it starts on the right foot. We would say, okay, like God is God. I want him to be God. I'm going to submit to him. And, I, and part of that means that I'm going to study his word. I'm going to let him shape me through his word. And I'm going to take the Bible really seriously. But a desire to understand and know the Bible can easily, easily slip into a desire to master and control, a desire to um, box God in. Because again, that's our default setting of how we live our lives. And ironically, we end up in the same place where we're using God to gain, or the Bible to gain 
mastery over God. And the vision of who God is and isn't through the Bible becomes a way for me to control God, to reduce God, to categorize him and to colonize him. And I colonize him down to the size of my own mind, what I can understand and think. As David Foster Wallace will say later in his essay, we make God into a tiny skull-shaped God because that's what we can conceive of. And we end up, ironically, with exactly the same problem. God can only act in ways that fit within my system. And this is the problem, excuse me, the problem with the religious leaders in Matthew. They've done exactly the same thing. They've studied the Torah so closely that it's turned into some sort of calcified system, not something that points beyond itself uncontrollable God who's writing this beautiful story in history. And because they've calcified it down into a system, when they meet the person of God in Jesus, they think, oh, you can't be God. It doesn't fit within my system of, of, of my understanding. It's just too wild. So this is the heart of the test that Satan is putting in front of Jesus, to put God in your service, to make him in your image rather than the other way around. And I think it's just as real and maybe even more alive today than it was back then. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 7, Jesus told Satan, it is also written. So he's quoting the Bible here. The Bible is not the problem. The Bible is not the problem. It's our desire to control, to put ourselves in the driver's seat that so subtly happens, it's encouraged in our society. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Jesus again is quoting here, but he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, just a couple chapters earlier, which speaks about Israel putting God to the test that God was acting in a way that they couldn't understand. He'd taken them out of slavery, put them into the wilderness, and they're there for 40 years. And they just can't understand. They have no conceivable way of knowing what's going on. So they're just like, we're just here to die in the wilderness. So they test God again and again and again and again. And Jesus says, I may be going through some similar test right now, that I don't don't know exactly how this is all going to end, my moment in the wilderness, but I will not take control of the story. I will not put God to the test, but I will trust God and submit to him. And again, the deeply ironic thing here is that if there's one person who should be able to test God or to kind of, you know, holler back at God, it would be Jesus because he's God himself. But as I said, this Philippians 2, we have to recognize that's who Jesus is, that he came to be a human, that he humbled himself. Although he's very God himself, he humbled himself to the form of a human, to not only a human, but a servant, not only a servant, but a servant who dies. And that's the story of who Jesus is. And so he submits to God He says, he is God, he's the one writing the story, he's the one in control, and I give control of my life over to him. And the tests that Satan brings about in our lives revolve around exactly the same questions. Do you understand the default settings that we have in our life, the propensity that we have to put ourselves at the center of the story? And are you willing to do what Jesus did? Those two things, to put your story within this larger story of God's faithfulness and to let go of control and give God back control of the story. All right, last test, test three, verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, I will give you all of these things if you just fall down and worship me. This is the most bald statement, the most bald temptation that, uh, that, that Satan gives Jesus. And it reminds us back a couple of weeks ago to the test of Herod, if you remember, that, all, uh, that, that we as humans um, want to minimize our vulnerability and gain not just control or mastery or reign with God, but we want to have ultimate control. 
That's what Herod wants to do through his, uh, through his throne. He's trusting in the idolatry of the throne to help him keep control, to not be vulnerable, and to maximize control. And, and as we talked about then, what that does is create systems of injustice, and it puts people in poverty. It gives them no agency over themselves and makes them maximally vulnerable. And I can't imagine a better way of thinking what's going on in Ukraine right now than through that dynamic itself. But that's what's going on. And, and idols, we said, always do this. They, they promise us a lot. That's what Satan is doing. I'll give you everything. Just give me a little bit of worship. They ask for a little and they promise a lot. But in the end, idols do the opposite where they ask for everything. Andrew was talking about addiction. This is how addiction works. It asks for everything and gives you nothing. That's what uh, Satan is offering Jesus. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We don't see this because we're not steeped in the Hebrew scriptures in the way that the first readers of Matthew are, but Jesus' answers have been subtly working their way back through the book of Deuteronomy. Started in chapter 8, then a couple quotations from chapter 6, and here he's going, the, quoting one of the most important prayers in the Hebrew scripture, the Shema prayer from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus' answer here is an exclamation point. God is who he says he is. And he uses the name Yahweh, which is like he's that uncontrollable God. He is who he will be. He is who he is. And I love him. He's my God. I will submit myself to him and love him with all that I have. Verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Two things to notice here in closing. We started with the point of, of this being a test. It's asking the question, who is Jesus really? Who is he truly? And there's two things that stand out to me. The first is that Jesus is the true human. You know, I think it's, I get this idea in my mind that, like I said, either Jesus is very stoically going through this or that he's going through it kind of like a Superman, uh, just busting through each one of these things. But this passage is so interesting because it says that he needed to be served. Jesus is weak. He's a true human. He needed to be ministered to. And I, I don't know why, but this week for me, that was just a great hope to me that Jesus is a vulnerable person. It's not about being, and, and for, for me following him, it's not about being, becoming a stoic. It's not about learning how to tell some, you know, uh, heroic tale of how Jesus has helped me to achieve my middle-class dream or my upper-class dream or my lower-class dream or whatever it is but it's about finding myself in this story and finding myself in this person of Jesus, the, the, the God-human, that he is my king, and, and allowing myself in my weakness to be filled with his spirit. That's the invitation of what it means to follow Jesus into this story under this person, filled with his spirit in my weakness. And the second thing that's super encouraging from this passage is that Jesus passes the test. You know, in the garden, in that first test, the people fail. And what happens, the consequence of their failure is that they're kicked out of the garden. They're sent out of God's presence. But in this passage, we see the opposite. Jesus is tested, but he passes. And instead of being kicked out, he kicks Satan out. He says, get out of here. You have no place here anymore. And Jesus is asserting his kingship in this place. He commands Satan to leave. And so he's saying, this is my space. This is my dominion. This is my kingdom I am restarting this story. I am recreating and I'm reversing the curse of what happened in those early chapters of the story. That his kingdom is coming and this Satan has no place here anymore. 
that Jesus is our King, and He's inviting us into that story, wherever you find yourself today, that Satan has no place in Jesus' kingdom. He wants us to come into His story and see that the kingdom or the, the curse has been reversed, that the kingdom of God is breaking in, and He is creating shalom through His family, through renewed people, weak people who take on His spirit and are willing to live in His story, submit to His leadership and be agents and people of shalom in the world. Let's pray to close. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this story. We ask that uh, as we reflect now in response, that you would um, convict us of the areas where we are living our story outside of yours, and would you bring your story to cover ours, that we would see in the moments of darkness that we have that you are present. We pray that... um, you would also convict us of the areas that we take control. And I know, I'm not saying for even anyone else, I know in my own life, just because this is the default setting of our, of our society, that it's something so easy to do, to slip into taking control, lordship over my own life. And so I ask that you convict me and convict us of the areas that we're doing that and help us to put you back in that place of leadership over our lives. We thank you too that you are the great human, that you are the true king, and that you have conquered. And so we pray even as we sing now, as we pray, as we give, as we take communion together, that you would reassert yourself as king here, that the devil would have no space in our lives and in our stories and in this community, and that um, just through your grace and through your spirit that you would continue to bless the world through us as we submit ourselves to you and open ourselves up to your spirit. We pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.